lives <coughs> and practice of our teachers. in their minds. Obviously our faith and confidence comes from We're actually fortunate in this day and age when I first ordained it's now possible to hear or read the translated teachings many different teachers from virtually the poets and the translators are all over the world the Dharma teachers the suttas everything is more available now And the opportunity to travel, to visit, it's easier to travel. great support for us in our practice. Listening to the teachings can help overcome some of our initial doubts. So obviously living teachers, Sangha members, they come from the same background as us in the sense they have body and mind. They're human beings just like us who've realized the importance of the Buddha's words and the path of practice and so have taken the time, the opportunity to to enter the road for the practice of bhikkhus and then to share what they've learned with others. The way of practice, it doesn't fade. They may have had ups and downs and difficulties in their practice, but this one quality endures and nourishes many other spiritual qualities, brings forth the wearier, the effort that they put into the practice, the patience to put up with the difficulties of the practice and training the human mind. And many other qualities come forth from this. 
So faith is a spiritual faculty, it's a spiritual power. Makes the mind powerful, brings courage to the practice when you have some faith. And that grows and grows as we keep, learn to keep the sila, the vinaya of bhikkhus and monastics in training. Also gives us some further confidence and courage in the practice. Because we know we're living in a, a good way and we're not. creating conflict in the world around us when we follow the Vinaya. Leads on to effort. Wiriya leads to the development of mindfulness, willingness to put effort into sitting, walking, meditation, practicing mindfulness in daily life. All of these are powers, strengths of the mind. leads on to samadhi, development of calm, some inner peace, inner contentment, which helps us to internalize the Dhamma, see the Dhamma and develop some true wisdom and understanding. Obviously that faith that is the beginning point of our practice has to be balanced with some wisdom as well. It's obviously possible to put our faith in the wrong place or as a quality that isn't managed it can be a bit dangerous sometimes we can lose our way and become so inspired that we want to convert the whole world change other people make other people see what we think we see often in the beginning our faith is not balanced with wisdom so it we can appear a little bit naive to other people or inexperienced. So wisdom is a quality that we need to balance our practice right at the beginning, but obviously it's something that deepens through the practice. Our understanding deepens. With our access to teachers, living with teachers, hearing the Dhamma explain this has a very valuable effect on our practice as well because often when you just read the suttas, <coughs> the Vinaya or the Abhidhamma, although the Dhamma is laid out for us in the in the text, there's often not that much explanation how to practice. Not much example given how to practice, what to do day by day as a Buddhist monk, how to practice. So living teachers and living teachings often help fill in some of that detail. And we can read about the Four Noble Truths, all the different explanations, the theory, read about the Paticca Samabhata, the theory about how human beings end up suffering. But often there's not much 
guidance of what to do about it. Having understood the theory, what do we do next? That's where the living teachers come in. They can share some of their more personal experience and that can also give us more confidence in the practice. Makes it seem a little bit more real. As Lungta Mahabur said, it's like a shortcut. If you have a teacher that's practiced already, they can tell you what they've experienced or if they see you experiencing the same things, same obstacles and difficulties, or they can give you very quick advice that's right to the point. Of course, as we keep practicing, then sata becomes more internalized and we don't have to rely so much on external sources, although they're still valuable. Maybe we can start to gain some confidence just based on our own experience over time. Experience some states of peace or joy contentment and that can deepen as our understanding and our wisdom faculty develops often in the beginning it's just the the joy of letting go of the world and they come abarami as we come into the monastery simplify our lives a lot of the difficulties and suffering of the lay life we drop that so we have a sense of relief or peace. But obviously, when we ordain our candors ordain, kilesas ordain as well. Greed, hatred, delusion are still there in the mind. And although, although we've simplified our life, often the kilesas will simply come down to settle on more simple things. we find we still have greed, hatred and delusion emerging in our consciousness, in our experience on a daily basis maybe. But the important thing is we have more, maybe more time, more opportunity to contemplate. In the, da in the daily life of a lay person often the sense is just no time to contemplate the Dhamma, to apply the Dhamma. It's just too complex, too busy. It's not impossible as we know, but most people find that's their experience. Spend all their time making money, earning money, and then seeking out different experiences, often just to try and distract them from the sense of discontent and dukkha that they might be feeling. We use the money we've gained to travel and seek different kinds of pleasure, seek a partner, have a family and so on. There's not much time to contemplate when you come into the forest and live in a bhikkhu life. At least we can start to contemplate some of these truths on a deeper level. But still we have greed, hatred and delusion affecting us. We simplify our lives, well, they greed, hatred and delusion 
centers around maybe more simple things, more obvious things. Whereas before it was scattered all over the place in our relationships, our experiences of the world. Now it centers on more simple things, just like say the four requisites of a bhikkhu. Whereas before we never thought much about food because we had the opportunity to buy food, choose food, eat food whenever we wanted. Now we eat food maybe just once a day in a bowl and it's not the food we've chosen or cooked or prepared ourselves. Something very simple like food starts to bring out birds or foxes or wallabies, whatever. If you have a lot of leftover food, you put it out. Already the animals start to pick and choose. They only want the best food that suits them. And they leave the more ordinary food. If the amount of food drops off, they'll take anything. Human beings are the same. When we're lay people, we have so much sense stimulation, so much opportunity to satisfy our senses that we don't really notice craving at work. As soon as you cut that off, come and live in the forest, craving will come up. Things that we want are not there, so we miss them. We be, often become more agitated over something very simple, like having a drink or not having a drink, how much food we eat, how much sleep we get, and so on. This is why we have to put effort in our practice into learning the Vinaya. It's helping to just curb and restrain some of the worst excesses of our kilesas. Helping us to calm down, especially in the beginning of our practice when all this craving starts to come up. That in itself is a major. Requires a major Choose our friends. Go here and there. Even people we had to meet up through work or Bhikkhu, again, we can't choose. We can't choose our food, we can't choose who we live with, who we meet. So we use the Vinaya to manage this, manage our Food, 
restraint terms of practice we're learning to restrain our reactions our, our reactions of aversion our reactions of attachment clinging liking and disliking in the beginning of our practice that's often just the main area where we're practicing mindfulness we might not yet develop deep states of samadhi but just learning to not fall into arguments learning not to be greedy with the requisites and so on this is where we practice this is how we put the four noble truths Paticca Samubhada into practice in a daily on a daily basis and it can be quite subtle might start with a very obvious things like just how we eat, how we use the requisites, how we relate to other people around us. If you keep contemplating and developing mindfulness, you see this goes right down to the core upadana or clinging that leads to suffering. Dunha is the is the cause for clinging, upadana. Dunha arises all the time in daily life when we lose our mindfulness. Seeking of pleasure, avoidance of pain, seeking what we like, avoiding what we don't like. This is a feature of human life and in the monastery we're starting to see it more clearly on a daily basis. Dana is a cause for upadana, upadana is a cause for bhava. What they call the existence or becoming or the sphere of becoming, the sphere of the mind. When we have strong views on things that we cling on to, that becomes becoming the sphere of the mind, what we identify with strongly in the mind. It will affect how we think, our attitudes, what we cling on to, identify with in daily life. So it can be culture and religion, it can be views on politics, it can be do with race and class, to do with our families, to do with property and wealth, 
all kinds of things. And just because we come into the monastery, clinging and becoming doesn't disappear, simply changes maybe, adapts, so we can even start to cling to aspects of the bhikkhu life, cling to our requisites, our status, cling to our whatever small wealth we have, our kuti, personal objects of wealth. Ajahn Chah was very wise in developing a system and train ourselves to use the requisites just as we need them. kinds of suffering, dispute. Ajahn Chah said a defining moment for him when he started practicing when he was a young monk. good friend of him, good friend of his, a Maha, was a scholar monk who could actually use the money to fund his own studies, get books and so on. It's often how monks survive in the city study monasteries. The monk didn't want to take money, but Ajahn Chah was determined, so in a, with a sort of sense of shock, his friend received his money and Ajahn Chah said that's it, I'm not going to take or use money ever again. Which is a big step in those days in Thailand when it was very poor. Monks were not so well supported as they are today. It's quite a leap of faith just to give up money. Be uncertain about how you'll survive as a bhikkhu in the future. He also said it opened up a big chasm between him
limited. The monastery is very poor, the support is very poor. There's only a few of us there. As a novice, my duty was to actually cook and prepare a bit of food in the kitchen because so little was given on Bindabata and on a normal day nobody would come to the monastery to offer food because it was an island. So I used to collect fruit and mushrooms, open some tins just to support the Sangha, about four or five of us. We had a few fruit trees that the nuns, before they had gone back to Wapapong, had planted and Ajahn Chah had encouraged them to make a garden of fruit and vegetables because the food was so poor. The uh, problem was the elephants used to come in and eat the produce of their labours in the garden. So that was one reason Ajahn Chah had the nuns go back to Wapapong felt it was too risky for them living there. But the fruit trees were there and they'd grown up. So there was jackfruit and mangoes. In the mango season, you could see the craving as the mangoes ripened on the tree. And sometimes the monkeys would steal them. Other times, lay people, the poor of villages, would come through the forest hunting or collecting, and they might take the mangoes. And one day I wanted to shout at them, say, don't take the mangoes, we can eat them. But luckily we'd had the stories from Ajahn Chah, many stories about mangoes, mango trees, orchards. I'd already, already, already heard the one about, we talked about, Becoming, this sphere of becoming, sphere of existence, how it forms around things. So if you're a farmer and you have an orchard, say a hundred mango trees, well that becomes your sphere of becoming. Every tree becomes part of your attachment. Anything happens to a single tree, you're already caught into suffering, birth and then suffering somebody steals just one tree then you're ready to kill them maybe all of this is the sphere of becoming leading to birth someone steals the fruit of your tree then it's more birth and more leads on to more suffering more anger more disappointment and so on so rather than shouting at the people i just contemplated that and practiced patience with my own craving for the mangoes as I saw the villagers take them all from one tree. And Jan Chah said if we attach or somebody attaches to a hundred mango trees, and it's like the mind is ready to be reborn.
of practice, different practices in Buddhism, different beliefs, different views on Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, practicing meditation, we should have more time to meditate, less time to meditate, more time to work, less time to work, more time to study, less study, on and on it goes. Just views can become a sphere of becoming. And lead to disagreements, lead to faction forming. One group against another group and so on. But in a monastery we have time to contemplate this and hopefully establish some mindfulness around how these processes of dhanha, Upadana, Bhava, Jati are taking place, start to establish mindfulness and develop a bit more equanimity around these things. This is the advice Ajahn Chah said. Obviously, we practice mindfulness and we practice
this under a microscope. We're not talking so much, but we're having to decide exactly how we spend our time, divide our time. The different activities of the day become very, very obvious. We can see our craving arise, maybe wanting to do certain things that we are restricted from doing because we're on retreat. Notice how the lack of stimulation affects the mind, sometimes makes us very dull. Seeking any kind of stimulation from a book or a tape, after that's worn off, then the mind maybe just goes dull, quiet. So maybe sleepiness, lethargy becomes a big issue. The more we practice mindfulness, though, the more it brings our attention to what's going on, what's going on in our mind, and how we're relating to the world around us. This is very much the key to our practice, to developing the varigana, loving, using the familiar with it, using the breath. Stability leads on to more calm, and that gives us a chance to contemplate more deeply what's going on. Often we are still.
something special from it. So keeping the attention on the breath. Course, more fast. And the thinking takes away from the breath. The more we practice Varadhamma, the more we get used to this concept of You can start to see causes and results, cause and effect where we put our mind that leads to more mental agitation, more suffering. Where does anger come from? Where does greed and lust come from? Over time it becomes very obvious and you keep putting your attention in the wrong places. Well, it doesn't lead to peace of mind. It stirs the kilesis. If you stop putting your attention in those and wisdom can operate better you can see the impermanence of different moods see the impermanence of greed and anger and their objects and how can we experience anatta in daily life when you practice parikama meditation you keep ignoring different agitated mental states, letting them go. Keep ignoring the objects of the kilesis, the objects of your greed, the objects of your anger. The mind starts to let those moods go and they disappear. So you can teach yourself that these things are not self, things that maybe you've identified strongly before, at least temporarily, you can see, well, they're not there now. If you keep putting attention on the barikama, you have periods where the mind becomes more free, more peaceful. Then again, you contemplate back, reflect back. Those things that used to bother you, they're not there, they've gone. They're not self. The more we contemplate like this, the more we practice like this, then the better the mind gets at doing the contemplation. It depends on our karma and our past, as it were, what, how much we have to deal with, what we have to deal with. Everybody's character is different, their karma is different. But the skill we gain is that we, we can contemplate our experience bring up more wisdom, which in itself leads to a deeper peace, not just the peace of calming the mind through Barikama Pavana, but actually contemplating and seeing.
much more satisfying sense of peace, a real sense of an understanding and clarity. If you want to really pursue the practice, stay in the robes a long time, then this is the kind of skill you have to develop. A sense of peace and ease and contentment that comes through keeping the Vinaya developing the meditation skills and then contemplating. That's what frees the mind from doubts, frees the mind from the, at least the most extreme outbursts of craving and clinging. It gives us some understanding of what we have to do in order to completely free the mind from craving. If you practice meditation every day, there will definitely be certain periods in the day when greed is quiet, anger is quiet, delusions and doubts are quiet. Even if they re reoccur again, if you're mindful enough to notice those periods when they're not there, you can build on that. The mind starts to incline more towards that, the mind that is free from greed, hatred, delusion. That's a very powerful conditioning process. And this is the development of the path in daily life. Keep going to that place where craving is subsiding, disappearing, becoming mindful of that. That gives you the inspiration and the momentum to keep practicing. Even when it's very difficult. We don't live forever, we don't stay healthy forever. So while we have our physical strength, while we have youth on our side, this, this is the wisest way to use our time. You really come to understand your own mind, how to free, from, free it from the effects of craving, attachment, becoming, birth. So I'll leave you with these reflections for your contemplation tonight. You can carry on practicing meditation for a little while longer. <laughs>